and how does one navigate the, the behaviors in the room? So studied anthropology, sociology, psychology, and actually one of my most influential courses was in family therapy, mm. right? Cause they're dealing with family dynamics right. and there, I was very much influenced by this woman. Her name is Virginia Satir noted as one of the pioneers in family therapy and systems thinking in family therapy. And mm. she was a master at asking questions. And I latched on to her work and started just reading everything that she had ever written. She had passed by that time and really began to influence me on how it is that one affects change and leads one, lays out the carpet for one to start considering another view. And so that's actually how the whole process started. Hi. Michelle Florendo here, and welcome to Ask a Decision Engineer. Listen in and find out how to untangle big decisions with less stress and more clarity. Whenever I teach about decision-making, inevitably the comment comes up, these frameworks are great and all, but what do I do about the other people in the room? Decision-making in groups definitely adds a layer of complexity. That's why I invited Katherine Rosbach, an expert decision and risk analysis facilitator and a colleague of mine from the Society of Decision Professionals, onto the show. We'll be talking about the science behind asking questions, how to lay the groundwork for shifting someone's perspective, and strategies for facilitating more effective meetings. Enjoy the episode. Catherine, I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm just so appreciative that you're here because again, the show's called Ask a Decision Engineer. I get a lot of questions about decision-making and inevitably I get questions about, okay, but how do I get the other people I work with on board? And I thought, you know, I know someone who is an expert facilitator, has been in the room trying to shepherd groups through decision processes. And I figured that is something that you will be able to share a ton of wisdom about today. <laughs> Have a bit of experience with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so why don't we go ahead and start there? Why don't you share just a bit with the listeners about how you came to do some of the work that you do now? Yeah. I remember one time I was giving a talk, it was on, it was for people graduating and career coaching. And, and I remember telling this group of young engineers, I'm about to tell you my career. And in retrospect, it's going to sound like it was very nicely planned. <laughs> but if I told you what was going forward, it would have seen this hodgepodge of stuff kind of coming together. And I think I could say the same for how I got into the role that I am in. I'm a chemical engineer by my first background from Purdue. And when I graduated, I was doing a lot of quality engineering, process engineering, things of that kind. And I was just given this job of, hey, you're really good with people. You know, why don't you lead this group? And, and that was at the time of TQM and team building and mm -hmm. team problem solving. So fell into that. And then so when I was introduced to the decision and, and analysis process, my first workshops with were Kenny, Kenny Oppenheimer out of SDG, mm -hmm. uh, it was, I just, it was just kind of a natural thing for me. I just fell into this. I thought, oh, this is kind of like the quality engineering. And so started facilitating a lot of the teams. And then people were watching me facilitate and said, hey, I, I want to do what you do. 
and I said, what do I do? And, <laughs> but none, so it's kind of sat back and, and started to put together workshops on how you said, you know, there's, there's one thing about the, the modeling and, and the, and the framing and, and all the fun investigative work and the interviewing the SMEs and things. But the hardest part is often those first couple of meetings, I should go back to framing when you have all these people in the room, it's ambiguous, it's messy. There's a lot of people stuff, there's organizational politics. And you're like, what do you do with this? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, I get that question so much. What do I do with the organizational politics? Yes. Yeah. Can we just get rid of this, these, these, this individual? No, you really need them, (laughs) which is, yeah. One of the lines I would give the students in my workshop is wouldn't your processes all work great if it wasn't for the fact that there's people in the room and inevitably you need these individuals though, because they bring the different perspectives. And so Mm -hmm. they, they need to be part of the dialogue. Their voices need to be heard, but it certainly makes things challenging. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering where is best to start here because it's a big question. What do I do about the people in the room? <laughs> yeah, in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I know that you also have this entire, well, it, it's a book and a methodology, this this point of view around asking a better question. Yeah. And so it's so funny because as an executive coach, sometimes people say, oh yes, I need a, I need help working on how can I persuade people and influence people? How do I tell people what to do? And I'm wondering if you can expand more on maybe why asking is better than telling. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And the whole field of questioning really came as trying to answer my own question on how do I work with people Mm -hmm. in the room and deal with the dynamics where you would see the rational discussions in the room. And then you'd see something entirely different when the group exit the room. And then I was also caught by the, the pretty dismal statistics on the likelihood of success of, for instance, implementation of organizational initiatives, strategic plans. I mean, the the odds are pretty low. I did a fair amount of research on this and it runs at a 60 to 80% failure rate, not success rate, failure rate. (laughs) And when you looked at the reasons why it was a lot due to the people issues. And Mm. so with these questions in my head, I, I actually went back to graduate school 16 years later. I went, what have I done? And I went into organizational communication program, masters of arts at Purdue, went back to Purdue. And to answer that question of why does it make perfect sense that there are so many complexities and and how does one navigate the, the behaviors in the room? So studied anthropology, sociology, psychology, and actually one of my most influential courses was in family therapy. Mm. Right. Cause they're dealing with family dynamics right. and there, I was very much influenced by this woman. Her name is Virginia Satir noted as one of the pioneers in family therapy and systems thinking in family therapy. And mm. she was a master at asking questions and I latched on to her work and started just reading everything that she had ever written. She had passed by that time. And really began to influence me on how it is that one affects change and leads one, lays out the carpet for one to start considering another view. And so that's actually how the whole process started and mm-hmm. how I fell into this whole asking realm. I was asking a lot of questions, but this put structure to it. This put the science behind it. And this really put a rigor behind it that then I started to incorporate in my work. Right. 
Oh, that's so interesting that some of this is grounded in in family therapy because that is definitely an environment where there are people in proximity who have to work together in some yes. shape or form who yes. may have differing views. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I remember that distinct moment when I picked the book. This is when I was dating myself, still shopping for books in a bookstore. <laughs> and I remember it was, it was that question of, wow, who knows about group dynamics? Because I'd read a lot of the pop management stuff and anybody who's been to my workshop knows that in the facilitation, the first thing I say is, you know, all this nonsense about writing ground rules to change behaviors, that's worthless. It doesn't reshape people's behaviors. And so I was trying to get into something deeper. And again, that had the rigor behind it. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking, who does this kind of work? And go, well, family therapists. And I walk back into the book section of that area and pulled the book. And I still have the one that I <laughs> pulled 25 plus years ago. And that really started the, the looking and researching into this whole area of how one navigates the, these complexities in, in a very robust way, not just saying we all need to be kinder, nicer, sing kumbaya, just do these kind of things and it will go away that the issues are there. They are very complex and they need a skill set in a way to navigate them. Right. Okay. So you were, you were talking about how one can lay, lay the groundwork or the carpet out to start changing someone's perspective. And yes. so what are the steps involved in even just getting started? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no, it's, um, this is, I'll, I'll share with you. It's, it's some other work that was done. I'm a, I'm a prolific, prolific reader. And I like to sit in a massive everything but pop management book. Mm -hmm. Like I said, negotiation, family therapy, just all sorts. One of my, it's, it's a fabulous book. It's called Chimpanzee Politics. And so for any of your <laughs> listeners wanting to read a book, I read an article that says, if you want to learn about leadership, don't read leadership books. And one of them that was listed is called Chimpanzee Politics. And it's mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. Because it, again, it has you, you know, how do you work in this? And, and the chimpanzee politics actually gets to some of it. You start to look at the system, first of all. Mm. Uh, too often we like to say, you know, that person is an issue or that one's difficult. Well, you've now separated that individual from, from the systems in which they operate and already you're going to be getting into troubled waters. So mm -hmm. I would say that's one of the first thing. It's not my job to move in and to change people. I'm not, I'm not a therapist, so mm -hmm. it's not my job to go in and make them kinder, better, sweeter. It's to recognize the system that's in place. So I would say that's the first thing is mm -hmm. when you walk in, to what extent are you, you know, diving and focusing on this person, which for me, and perhaps in your own work, we're coming in from the outside. I don't know these individuals. I don't have a history with them. And that affords me to not go down a path of already starting to pigeonhole them in a certain way. So that would be one of the first things. The, the second thing I would say is, it's a great quote. It's from a book called The Tao of Leadership, written by John Hyder. This is another one of my gospel statements. That he, he wrote, facilitate what is happening, not mm -hmm. what you think ought to be happening. Ah. And, and so I think that's another piece that often in when we walk in with our processes, whatever they might be, be they in the decision sciences world, problem solving world, we've been trained or taught and we say, okay, we've got to go through these, you know, six, seven steps and we're going to start here. Well, they aren't there. And to say, well, just follow my process or just do this is already putting me in a little bit of an antagonistic 
place with those individuals. And that's why I love start where they're at. Mm -hmm. Why are they even here? What are their issues? And if someone really doesn't want to be there, I'm listening. Hey, tell me why it makes perfect sense. You don't want to be here, which really gets to one of the first steps is validating people's initial positions. Mm. When I'm dealing with complex situations, we jump pretty quickly into try to change them here. This is the way you should see it. <laughs> and which actually gets to a bit of the science of asking is better than telling is that asking doesn't have the effect of being inflammatory to the brain's mm -hmm. emotional systems. If I ask, oh, how did you come about that? Or how did, what was your thinking behind that? That's much different than if I say, well, why did you do that? Right. And probably we've all heard that and we're sitting up a little straight and go, well, because, and you know, it's game on. So when you are talking with someone and they th say, well, I think this is a waste of time. Okay. Tell me some more about that. What is it that leads you to that? How have you come to that? Where have you seen that in the past? Not only am I getting great information to find out that person's prior knowledge or past experience and why it makes perfect sense that they see it that way, mm -hmm. but it also has the effect of emotionally calming that situation. I'm not saying, no, you should see it my way. Cause mm -hmm. you know, again, that's another game on situation. Right. So in a nutshell, <laughs> and again, that's the high level. Right. Um, that's the mindset I think, which is more important than anything. It's not the line that you say, mm -hmm. but it's the mindset of how you approach those situations that then will allow those kind of questions to flow that can help move that situation forward. Right. Like what I'm hearing is leading Leading with empathy, because like you said, as opposed to looking at a person as an individual, recognizing the system within which they're in, like their whole experience, and then the piece around being able to meet meet folks where they are, facilitating yes. what is, and then yes. hear this last piece around validating their current initial experience and yes. position. Yes. And then from that lens of understanding and empathy, then where do people go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and then there goes no that's a good question because step two with that then is once you have that understanding of okay that's where they're coming from that's what makes perfect sense the next step is it's a, a step that you really start to understand the underlying thinking often what you hear from people i call it, it's the top of the mountain peak i use this analogy all the time with geologists because they really get it because <laughs> it's their life is you know you see the top of the mountain but what we're really interested interested in are the tectonic plates and the forces that create that peak. Mm. And so in that kind of work, again, within the confines of what it is that we're trying to achieve, it's always an eye on the organizational task at hand. We're not just doing a team building just for the heck of it, because I find yeah. those not, not very helpful, that we start to understand, well, where is that coming from and how are they seeing things? And so we're moving into a deep dive, what I call the expert exploration of the underlying thinking. Mm -hmm. But if in that moment, it's not simply their underlying thinking, because ultimately, we have to have a group come together and make a decision come to yes, this we can all work with this. So it's not only working with person A, but I might be over to person B and saying, you know, I'm wondering when you heard Suzanne comment on this, what, what was going through your head? And, and so I'm doing a tech, one of many techniques it's called bridging mm -hmm. and I'm starting to get them to comment on each other's views. 
and that you ultimately then start to weave together then, oh, so it's not just me and that person, it's those two individuals. And that, because that's where the dialogue belongs anyway, right? At the mm-hmm. end of the day, I'm not gonna be there. So I'm helping to, to, to create that bridge where they start to comment on each other, comment what's important. And then we move into now we have that, the, the conversational bridge literally has been built. And now you can start to say, you know, well, Suzanne, I hear this is really critical for you. And for John over here, this is, is something though that would, you know, might be difficult for him. I'm wondering what might you think or what might you suggest as a way through this? So now I'm starting, that's why people say, am I a mediator? I'm like, no, (laughs) because surely sometimes, by the way, there is no such thing as a truly objective facilitator. I always laugh when I hear that, but I'm not, I might help or nudge and say, what about this? But I'm always prepared to back out of the situation. Certainly when I'm dealing with anything, well, what if we consider this kind of strategy? But most of the work is looking at them and trying to help draw them out and having them start to consider options. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing I see is that people jump way too quickly to try to get to that spot. They see Mm -hmm. two people struggling and they say, okay, you guys got to work it out. And I say, they're not ready yet. The, Mm -hmm. The bridge hasn't been built. And that's where a really good facilitator I spend a lot of time, Michelle, pointing out that good facilitators, we're not note takers. I say note takers are historians. They write what has been said. Uh A facilitator is creating the dialogue. You're creating the direction of the thinking. You're saying, let's think about this first. Let's Mm -hmm. go here second. Let's go here third. And it has its roots in good behavioral science. It's, It's not random when I start when I do. So that's, I think, one of the huge values that a facilitator can bring to those situations to help groups through that, because you're there because they've tried often to get through this before and they end up at the same impasse. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting how you talk about people wanting to jump to the the resolution in differences and that people may not be ready. And it's really that groundwork that you point to people need to feel heard before yes. they're ready to engage in in opening themselves up to a possible other option, other point of view. Yes. Right. And I think there's a lot of, well, how are they going to, how's that other person going to be when I say this type mm. of thing? So it's, it's, it, it is, it's, it's very human in nature. And yet I, I don't, where I'm pausing here is because it's not simplistic. Right. There's too often a, you know, we've seen the ground rules, everybody's going to trust, everybody's going to listen, everybody's going to do that. And that's not going to get you there. Some of these issues have, have been there for a while. And it, it, it takes some, you know, some time. And again, our goal isn't at the end of the day to have everybody like a family, right? We're not going to mm-hmm. continue living together or interacting for the rest of our lives. So there are also some moments when you're like, this is good enough, right? If, if there's some still issues, but yes, we can move forward with this. That's good enough for this situation. Um, and I think that's something that as facilitators, we need to keep in mind as, in, as well when we're doing our work. Yeah. Mm. So interesting. And so, you know, you, you'd already offered up some great nuggets about like, how do you build that foundation up front? Just being mm-hmm. able to calm people down, get them to a place where they can have open dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess as, 
I'm I'm actually thinking about the students who are in my decision-making class right now, who <laughs> I know are going to ask the question, okay, well, what else should I know about how to, to bring people along or help facilitate these conversations about important decisions or action taking? What other nuggets would you offer are good hmm. to consider? No, that's a, it's a good question. And, and again, my pausing isn't at all to, is, is reflective of there, there's a lot of stuff there. I, I actually, <laughs> I wrote my asking question book actually as a result of a, a dear friend of mine, I had done a work, some work in Norway and she says, I just love the questions that you ask. Can you write down the list of questions? And I said, well, sure. And so I started to write this list of questions down, the favorite ones that I use. And I thought, well, it should go with an introduction. You know, that would be nice. And so I put an introduction together and I started that on a Friday afternoon and, and Sunday afternoon, I was still writing a show. So I figured it's, I'm writing the book there's now, stuff right? Stuff so think, and where I'm pausing, cause there's the two sides of this and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. working finally on the facilitation one, which has been asked for for a long time. And it's just, I got to force <laughs> myself to sit down. But in answer to that question, what else should I consider I I think a lot of it goes with um, when you're working with the individuals, I think you, speaking of questions, you have to be very, very clear of what are the questions that you're hoping this group will ask. When I recommend, and this goes to both questions and to facilitation, when I do agendas, I don't write them in the form of objectives and things of that sort for the purpose, because that's kind of fuzzy. When is enough talk enough? I write agendas in the form of questions. Hmm. And so a quick nugget to walk away with is the next time you're going to be sitting in a meeting and saying, this is what we're going to talk about, write down what two to three questions will be answered by the end of this meeting or discussion or interview. I use Mm -hmm. this for all of my stakeholder interviews, my subject matter expert interviews, when engaging with customers, what do you want to know or have done by the end of your discussion? Now you take that and go, okay, well, how am I going to get there then? And what questions am I going to ask? And of whom am I going to ask these questions in order to start working down this path? Mm -hmm. So you're already formulating a plan beyond the typical agenda. First, we're going to talk about this and then talk about this. You're getting into your head. Well, hmm, how do I want to start this? Who would be a good person to start with? Okay, I know this person is kind of a big talker. I might put this person at the end. So I'm developing the strategy, but most importantly, it's thinking about the thinking. How do I want it to go? But it's always in the context of what question am I trying to have answered? And that's what sometimes surprises me that people will say, oh, I wanna use this tool or technique. And I go, that's great. What question are you trying to answer with this? And they go, huh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. (laughs) I go, well, it might be a good idea to first identify that. Then you go out and say, okay, I'm gonna use this tool or this method or whatever you want to use to, to answer that. But you know why you're doing what you're doing. And the reason why that's good is because sometimes you're going to choose a pathway and it's not going to work and you go, Mm. Hmm, that didn't go so well, but you know what you're after. So you're going to come in another door and you understand the importance of it. And that's what I find sometimes is missing. We jump into, okay, I've learned this process or technique. So I'm just going to dive into step one. I like to go, why, Mm. what if you skipped step one? What if you went to step two, you know, so what? So it gets you 
more comfortable with where you hope to go. And I think then, therefore, as the group moves in and out of your plan, because it always does, I call agendas our best guess of what we think is going to happen. And I always say, if it's a full workshop by hour two, it's changed because I don't know what people are going to say, Mm -hmm. but I have a better feel for how I'm going to navigate those bumps along the way, which I think is sometimes what again, going back to your first question about people is sometimes what causes hiccups with people. They get something they weren't expecting. And it's like, Oh no, what do I do now? Mm. You're fine. You know where you're going to go. You'll get back to that point. This is a bit of a derailleur, you know, they honor it to, Oh, we'll get back to that is a good way of telling somebody, I don't want to hear from you. And you might've just lost, you know, a voice in the room. They, they just quit participating. Mm-hmm. I think this is so interesting, this reframe around when designing meetings and discussions, be very clear about the questions you want to have answered, because it really, it makes you think about the voices piece. Who are the voices? How do we cultivate discussion and ensure that we are hearing from the perspectives in the room versus just like an, an action agenda can can get people into that like very telling, well, here's the thing. Why aren't people yes. doing this thing yes. that we've set forth? Yes. And and I think too, it, it, it leads to these, well, we got through all the items, but, and you've probably heard this, no decision was ever made. Mm-hmm. Ah, you know, <laughs> I, 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 a friend of mine a long time ago pointed out meetings are the most expensive form of communication. Mm-hmm. Text is cheap, right? Doesn't take us that long. When you put everyone in the room, and their salaries and the time that it takes, we could take that same meeting. And if we had everyone read it, we'd be done very quickly. But the value and why we choose that is those meetings are so rich, right? Mm -hmm. We found out during COVID how, you know, even in our form right here, we're missing out on a lot of the clues and the signals that, by the way, if I'm in a very complex, messy room or meeting, I am so glad to have everyone present there because there's so much information that I was very aware during COVID. I felt mm-hmm. like it was anorexic in terms of the, the mess, the medium. But when you are all together in the room, it is one of the most expensive forms of communication. And you really owe it by the end of that hour or two hours or whatever to have answered those questions. Now, having said that, sometimes Certainly there are times when there is, wow, this is much more complex than we thought. We need different people in the room. Hey, how would it be if we continued this on next week? Da, 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 da. Well, that's a more informed, deliberate choice rather than time's up. Thanks everybody for the hour. And we all walk out going, you know, what just happened to us? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you touch on an important point there about how meetings are the most expensive form of communication. And another question that I get, especially around group decision-making is how do you think about who is the appropriate group of people to have? Super. Yeah. That's where actually questions come in helpful for that as well. And I, I too hear that a lot. And sometimes I'm facilitating meetings and I want to go, why are you here? Because my, my mantra for meetings is you want everyone you need and not one person more. Mm. The, the best working size, it said, is it's called the 10 group phenomenon. So if you looked at hunting bands or sporting groups, we have this interesting sociological draw for 10 people. And you get over 10 people and groups naturally splinter, which if you've ever been in a big meeting, 20 people, Oh, that's a lot. And people start to have side conversations. It gets unwieldy. I'm not saying don't, because I appreciate there's sometimes you have to have 20 people, but this is when you're really with a good working group, 
eight to 10 is, is a good size. First of all, mm-hmm. the second thing is, is again, going back to, to our, our, um, ground rules. You maybe have seen the one, you know, everybody will check their title at the door. Well, we don't, we're very aware of who's in the room and we change our conversation accordingly. And so, I'm very aware that if this is trying to get to the root of something and perhaps we have a higher up or plus two, let's say that that plus two, meaning two higher, that Mm -hmm. that can change. That's going to change the dialogue in the room. Now, there are techniques I can use to help mitigate that, but it's present. And so there have been times and just happened recently where I said, hey, we need you to kick this off without a doubt. You're setting the tone of this. This has absolutely got to be heard from you. And I'm wondering, are you okay then coming in at the end of the day where we sit down and say, this is what we covered. And they're like, sure, great idea. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's something else when you talk about who should be in the room. Again, I go back to the three questions that we're going to answer by the end. And I like to say, to, to determine who's in the room, it's first, who has answers or who brings information that's going to help us answer those questions? Because mm-hmm. those questions might have some sub questions, but there's people right. who have that. So yeah. for wanting to know about, well, what's happening in the market, somebody has market data, somebody has market research. Okay. So we have the people who have the information. And then we have our second group are those people who can make the decision. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes we choose to have our, and in, in certainly in the decision sciences often is advocated to have your decision board in a separate meeting fine. But some groups say, no, we want our decision makers here in the meeting. So who has the ability to say yes or no to that question that we're answering? Mm -hmm. So I look at, it's those two people. And if you don't fit in that, those two baskets, I'm wondering, what are you here for is is how (laughs) I look at it. And somebody said, well, I walked into one group. I remember one time there were all these chairs around the wall. I mean, there must have been 30 chairs. I go, who sits there? I'm always intrigued when you walk into meeting rooms because they say so much about how people meet. They go, oh, those are the people who come and just listen. I go, they listen. They just sit there. They can't talk. And they go, no, no, you sit in those chairs. You can't talk. I said, well, how about we just send them a meeting summary at the end of the meeting? But yeah, because again, even people in the listening chairs, they're going to change the conversation. And so that's why I'm very, very careful about who is present in the meeting room. Okay. And so it seems like there's the, who can provide information piece. And I'm pulling this back because sometimes when people are listening, it's like they appreciate the the auditory sound signposting. So people who can actually answer some of the questions that we've set forth, we want to answer in this meeting. Who are the people who have the authority to take action, make those decisions? And then also this consideration of how do the people in the room, like who's in the room affect the dialogue and what people are actually comfortable saying. Yes. Yeah. Their talk will change. I I call it, it's like having the neighbors over for dinner. Hmm. The conversation changes when you have the neighbors over for dinner than if it's just the family at home. You talk about different things. You talk about things in a different way. Yeah. And can you mitigate that? Yes, you can with that effect. For instance, if I have somebody who reports to somebody else in large groups, I'll often use breakout groups. Nine times out of 10, I'm not going to have the reporting structure in the same group unless mm-hmm. again, the meeting format dictates it. But I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm mindful of those type of things. If I have the stronger personalities in the room, I might just happen to put all the strong people together in a groom to work an issue so they can kind of work it out themselves. But what are we going for at the end of the day? Everyone is there 
to make a contribution. And it's like 30 years of research that I've seen, and maybe you have some as well, that one of the top reasons why people hate meetings, hate workshops is that they were never heard. Mm. Nobody, you know, it's, what is it? Two to 3% of the, or two or three people do 60% of the talking and it's not changed years and years and years of meetings, right. Of learning how to be in meetings. We, it's still the same thing in the 19 or 2022s that it was in 1982, but it is trying to, how can we ensure that the voices are heard, the different views are heard? We hear so much about inclusion and diversity. This is what it's about in, in these discussions. And how can we create a, an environment in which those different perspectives have, have, can be heard and also where differences can be heard? Because mm. we hear about, let's hear the different perspective but as someone once said, yeah, well, that was great hearing the different perspectives, but now we have 10 different views. Now what do we do? Mm. And so it's how to make those hearable. But then it's that second step that I was telling you about. How do you start to bridge among them so that you can weave together these different perspectives? And I think not only is it great for meetings, but I look at this as this is the challenge for when we say inclusion and diversity in our meetings of being able to achieve this. Because just tossing a bunch of people in a meeting room isn't going to get you there by itself. Right. And you've offered so many, so many gems on how can people think more intentionally about how they're designing these spaces, but laying the foundation for yeah. people to feel comfortable and for them to share. And then also this piece of validating their positions and what they're hearing and starting to bridge. And so I can, I can already hear my students asking the question, okay, then what? Like we've done this divergent process of hearing from people, being very inclusive, soliciting these different perspectives, but when we need to start going toward you know, that action phase. Yeah. How do we make the shift? Yeah. I'm laughing because it's a term you've always heard of the divergent converging piece, which is really nice and pretty, but that's not life. (laughs) It, 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 kind of uses, I always like to use this quote. It is from a, one of my favorite anthropologists, I think. No, I I take that back. Anyway, it was around chaos theory. And the Mm -hmm. quote was life is attracted to order. Margaret Wheatley said life is attracted to order, but it uses messes to get there. (laughs) <laughs> and I love that because, you know, okay, we're going to dive and converge and it's all going to diverge, converge. It's all going to be great. A while ago, I read this quote. It was called the, it, they labeled the place in between the grown zone. And I thought it was perfect. It was a wonderful descriptor of that place in the middle. Because again, the other thing about a lot of the processes and things, it's all going to be nice. It's all going to be linear. No, it isn't. It circles. It comes back. You're going to revisit your problem statement probably five times if not 10, which is all good because you're going to find new information. And so it it really is that messy place. And I would love to, you know, now what do we do? My, my high level comment would be learn to be comfortable in the mess. Mm. It's going to find a way through you're stepping back up. Hold on just a second. I don't know why he's, he shouldn't have been doing that. Oh, well, he's quiet now. So yeah, my office mate. So it is, you learn to be quiet and you're going to see stuff happening. And literally it is as a part of chaos theory for systems to improve. They have to go through that period of chaos and reconfiguration. And so to not stop it, Mm. there's a, there's an analogy that I'll use. I've seen with teams 
that they they the analogy I give is they're sitting on an island and they hate the bananas. They're running out of bananas. The bananas are bruised <laughs> and they go, we got to get off this island. We don't like it. So that's our metaphor for something needs to change in the organization. Our strategy is not working. Our organization is inefficient, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then we all jump in the boat and we start to take off for this other island. There's a place where you get in the middle where you can't see the old island and you can't see the new one yet with the promise mm-hmm. of the better bananas and everything else. Right. And we go, you know, that old island wasn't so bad after all. Those bruised bananas, we can make banana bread out of them. You know, we start to want to go back, which is if your students were to ask, you know, what do you do in the middle? Ensure that the boat doesn't turn around and go back to the old island. So what I would tell your class when they're asking that diverge, converge, one of your biggest roles is to make sure that boat doesn't turn around. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in the middle of this chaos, the old island is looking pretty good, (laughs) which is one of the reasons why with, with clients, I'll often ask, what if you do nothing? What if you didn't do this? What's the so what factor? And, you know, what's driving this in the first place? And, and if they think, you know, is status quo fine? If we stayed here, is that an option? I always ask that when companies say we want to change our strategy. Hmm. Because if status quo is an option, that island is going to start looking pretty good. Because any type of change is going to re- require a behavioral change. Any strategy hmm. change is in essence a behavioral change, any organizational new, new operation is a behavioral change. And we know that it's hard. And we look back and that old island looks pretty good. So that's one of the most important things that they can do is help in that moment in the middle and start to say, yeah, that might start looking good. And let's revisit why we chose to do this in the first place. What's going to be different as a result of this? What are we going to avoid as a result of doing this? That kind of help is very, very important. I know sometimes it goes under the heading of change management, but I don't suggest that that's just left for somebody with that in their title, that that's Mm -hmm. a critical role that a facilitator can play. Right. Like really holding, holding their attention to what is possible versus. Yes. And why. Right. Why and what will Why be is it worth as it? a result of that and what will change, which is, yeah. And there's a whole bunch of other psychology. I think you're getting a sense <laughs> of the influence that that has had yeah. because again, people think, oh, rationally, this is a good thing to do for our organization and we could go ahead, but I'm proposing that the reason it doesn't get implemented is not because of poor rational reasons, maybe, no, but it, all, it has a lot about. to do with, yeah, it has, it's, a, it's the behavioral aspect. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so let's see, we've gone a number of different directions in this conversation, but I'm curious as we start wrapping this up, what is it that you want to leave listeners with? If you remember anything from this conversation. Golly. That's a hard one. That's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. (laughs) I would say given what we covered today, 
I think I'll go back to the, that quote of facilitate, because we talked a lot about that with groups and dealing with groups and touched on, yes, there are good questions that you can ask. And there's a way to start asking questions. And, you know, there's, there's more information out there. But if I think if, if I were to leave them with two things, one would be to facilitate what is happening, not what they think ought to be happening. Mm. Because I think it puts them in the room. And when you're in the room, you're seeing the faces, you see what hap- you're, what's happening, you know your other stuff, it'll come, but you can adopt that to where people are right now, mm-hmm. right? People at the end of the day, they don't care about your process. They really don't. They care about solving their problem. And so by being present with them, I am so much better about, hmm, maybe I'd need to do this and do this because I'm getting my signals where they're at. And I move mm-hmm. with that. I'm not saying I give up the goal, right. but I'm saying I move where they are at. Yeah. So that would be my first thing. And I think the second thing that a lot of people have told me really helps is the question. My question that I use a lot is why does it make perfect sense? Why does it make perfect sense? They're doing this. Why do they make perfect sense? They don't want to go ahead with this because it has you move into being that detective and understanding the drivers, the knowledge, the experience, and one, so you validate their view, Mm -hmm. but secondly, it's giving you an awful lot of insight into, Hmm, given this now I might be more successful if I come in this store than in this store. So it's a very powerful question gives you a lot of information and moves you away from labeling people, which, you know, I know we like to do the various Myers-Briggs and colors and things like that, which are all very helpful, mm-hmm. but sometimes we label too much and labeling gets us stuck with individuals rather than giving us a path forward, if that makes sense. So those mm-hmm. would be my two things. Yeah. I love it. The fact that it's so centered on, on recognizing the humans in the room. where they're at right now, what they're feeling and being able to, like you said, do the detective work of why their worldview makes sense. Because it's only once we understand and acknowledge and validate their worldview that we can then work together to all move in the same direction. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's loads of information. I always say, if you had why it makes perfect sense for everybody in the room, and what's their drivers and what's their motivators? Oh, it'd be so much easier. <laughs> I, I look at good facilitation. It's kind of like good detective work. You, there's a lot to find out there mm-hmm. and your assumptions are so wrong. That's the other thing. This is <laughs> what I love about my work is I've been humbled so many times, but it, it, it's very rewarding work with, without a doubt. Very rewarding. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending some time sharing your wisdom with my listeners. Where is it that they can find you online or and oh. where can they learn more? Yeah, it's katherinerosbeck.com. And then my book that I have out, it's on Amazon. Asking is better than telling is on mm-hmm. Amazon, but I also put it on my website. But yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to share this and very much so because I've feel like I've spent a good 30 years trying to frame what strong facilitation is really about. And I think that your questions did an excellent job of really getting down to the nugget of why this is such a valuable skill set for organizations to have, Mm -hmm. um, given the challenges that they're working on, the incredible challenges that they're, they're facing. 
and that the skill set is so, so much more than just, hey, someone to take notes and print out an agenda, but to really help marshal this group of individuals who have different drivers, different concerns, different motivations, and yet somehow we're all supposed to come collectively together and determine some outcome that we can all agree to. So great okay. questions. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you heard something today that you found helpful, please share this episode or write a review. Also, if you're interested in more resources on how to make decisions with less stress and more clarity, like my quick start guide for untangling big decisions or the decision-making courses I teach, check out the show notes or go to askadecisionengineer.com to sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to check out the other episodes this season. Next week, I'll be in conversation with April Rin, author of the book, Flux. We'll be talking about how people tend to relate to uncertainty and how adopting a flux mindset can enable you to navigate a rapidly changing world with less stress and more grace. Again, this is Michelle Florendo from Ask a Decision Engineer. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.